Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, I'll get started and talk in just a moment, but as you saw a few moments ago, we start a brand new series next week, and it's called Lifeline. It starts on Palm Sunday, and it's going to be an interesting series in this regard. It's a synced up series in which I'll be doing a message for you guys scaled for an adult audience, but we're going to be on the same scripture and the same theme that Kids World is on. So whether you have a preschooler, uh, elementary age kid, junior high kid, You'll be able to talk about it on the way home. We're going to be looking five weeks at extraordinary things that happen in the life of Jesus. Palm Sunday next week, then Easter, and then the three weeks following that. So I want to encourage you to be uh, part of those series. And then, of course, next weekend we actually start our fifth service, which will be three weekend services. Three, excuse me, three on Sunday, rather, I should say. And I know that we're not crowded today because it's a, it's a spring break week weekend, but uh, next weekend is going to be a challenge. And we're really concerned about that middle service, that 1015 service, 845, 1015, 12 noon of the three, three service times. So if, if you could work it into your day to, to use either the 845 service or 12 noon service, you would actually be doing something special for New Spring and helping us get prepared to receive all the audiences of people who are coming, be part of what God is doing here at New Spring. Um, Today is the last talk of our series, Heavy Duty, Bolt Down Tight, and it's been a challenging series for us, but one that I've said, um, in fact, Mary Alice has kind of gotten after me a little bit for saying this. I said if I had three weeks left, uh, these are the three talks I would want to be sure that I delivered to you, and in her kindness, she's hoping I have a little more than three weeks left, uh, but I, I know that someday I'm going to stand before God, and, and he is going to hold me accountable for what I, what I brought to you as a message, and so I wanted to bring to you these three very important talks. As I said, if I had only three talks left to give, these are the ones I would have just wanted to have given right before I, I stand before God and give an account for my communication. And we've appealed to a book in the Bible called Romans, which was written by a lawyer, and it's like a legal case for the gospel. And specifically Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Week 1 was chapter 1, last week was chapter 2, and then today we'll be in chapter 3. And it's really an interesting book because, as I said, it's like a legal case laid out for the gospel. And, and I have a mind that kind of works in a logical fashion. The book of Romans is, is my favorite book uh, to teach from. Let me just start by asking a question today. I'd like for you to sort of kick it around and think about it for a few moments. Um, or maybe let me, let me do it this way. Let me make a statement and you analyze it and see what you think about it. Here is a statement. Good people go to heaven. How do you feel about that? Good people go to heaven. I think in our culture today, that, that is probably what most people believe. And, and even, even if we're not really settled on exactly how you get into heaven, I think that to some degree, it's on our minds. Because when someone passes, probably the first thing that we think about is the life that person lived. Was it, was it a life that we would consider a good life? Or did that person have so many issues that his life would be just below the 50% mark or 70% mark or whatever is past fell? Or if, God forbid, uh, it were to happen that you were to get a prognosis or a diagnosis from a doctor that said that you only had a few days, maybe months to live, you would be wanting to know about your own life. Am I good enough to get into heaven? Is the life that I lived good enough? Did I not do enough bad things? And do I have enough chips? Do I have enough good stuff in my life that would get me across the line? And, and you're probably not thinking about that today because hopefully you, you don't have that kind of diagnosis in your life, but you will someday. And who, who among us knows what day that day is going to be? Because it could come with a lot of warning or it could come suddenly. But we're, we're going to ask that question. A am I good enough to get into heaven if that is what we believe? So I don't know how you're percolating with that right now, but think about that statement, good people go to heaven. There are some issues that I think we ought to face up to right up front. And, and one of those is that this is the Bible. 
and this is God's message to us, you should be interested to know that if being good is what it takes to get into heaven, that no place in the Bible does God give us a standard that says you have to be this good, a, a threshold, a, a common denominator, a bottom, you know, lowest common denominator. There's no place in the Bible where God says this is how good you have to be to cross the line to get into heaven. Well, somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't think it works like that. I think it's all a matter of just being yourself and being true to your heart, following your heart. All of us have a conscience. I think it's basically about just doing what you know to be good. Well, but there is another problem with that, and that is that we have different ideas about what good is. I mean, we've seen wars fought with both sides, believing with all their hearts that they were doing what was good. We fought a war here in the United States called the Civil War, and in the greatest American speech, which is Lincoln's second inaugural, Lincoln points out magnanimously that both sides prayed to the same God. The South thought they were doing good. The North thought they were doing good. You say, well, I think one of the sides wasn't good. Well, that's your point of view. But those people thought they were good. On a more recent note, the guys who hijacked the airplanes and flew them into the towers would have passed a lie detector test that what they were doing was good. And if you've lived as long as I have, you know that you can even disagree with yourself about what's good because what you think is good when you're 13 isn't necessarily what you think is good when you're 55. See what I'm saying? So even if it's just a matter of conscience, our consciences are different. And, 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 and who's to say what good is? And if being good is what gets you into heaven, how could we ever know that we're all right? How could we ever know how, how well we were doing if it was good enough? It would be like playing a football game with no sideline markers, no hash marks, no end zones. It would be like running a marathon, and you don't know what the route is or how long it is. How could we know what's good enough? Well, I want to tell you the serious business, because some of, you, some of us could just say, well, Mark, I just really don't think it's important. And if you have a sort of 21st century cosmopolitan view about heaven, it sort of goes like this, that this life is what's really important. And maybe there is something out there somewhere, but I think it's sort of like the YMCA. I think if you just give it a good effort, everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> you know? As long as you're sort of true to your heart and you're basically a good person and you're not a terrorist, I think you're probably going to be okay. You know, everybody gets a trophy and everybody goes to heaven. Well, I, I think we ought to stop for a moment and think about something. I think we ought to think about Jesus on the cross. You know, it hasn't been too long ago since there was a cultural debate about who it was who was responsible for Jesus being on the cross. And when the Passion of the Christ came out, a lot of my Jewish friends were concerned about it because they felt like they could be targeted because there are those who have because of, of anti-Semitism, there are those who have made a big case about the Jewish, Jewish people putting Jesus on the cross. And, and I understand how my Jewish friends felt the way they felt. And there are those who say, no, it wasn't the Jews who put Jesus on the cross. They were Roman soldiers. It was the Romans who put Jesus on the cross. And I've actually been in church and listened to Christ followers say, well, it wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. Basically, we're the ones. Our sins, are, we're the ones who put Jesus on the cross. But did you know that all those are incorrect? It wasn't the Jews who put Jesus on the cross or the Romans, and it, you and I don't have the power to put him on the cross. The person who put Jesus on the cross was his father. Isaiah chapter 53 is just totally and impeccably clear on that. It, it was God the Father who put Jesus on the cross. When you think about the horrors of his crucifixion, 
how that his body was ripped open by the Roman whip. That was, it, was, it was so bad that Isaiah said you wouldn't even be recognized as human. When you, when you see him hanging there with nails holding his hands and his feet to the cross, you see the crown of thorns being bitten into, beaten into his scalp, and you watch him suffering there, fighting for every breath for six hours, and you see Jesus there, and you realize it was his father who put him there. I have three sons. I've done everything I could to keep my three sons from pain and suffering. And the Bible says I can't even begin to love my children the way God loves his children, and specifically his one and only son. All I'm trying to say, guys, and I know this is politically incorrect, and I'm swimming upstream with this series, and I'm well cognizant of that, but my, my job is not to be politically correct. My job is to get you ready for what happens five seconds after you die. All I'm trying to say to you is this, is that when you stop by the cross and you see Jesus hanging there and realizing that his father is the one who put him there and the purpose for him being on the cross is so that we can be okay five seconds after we die, here's the one thing that we're left with inescapably, and that is it's serious. It's not the why where everybody who tries gets a trophy. That's our sappy American culture. It's serious. And the Bible talks about this, and I just cherry-picked a couple of verses, but the Bible is so clear on this. There are two places to go when this life is over. In Revelation 20, 15, I just pulled that one out. The Bible talks about if anyone's name's not written in the book of life, they're going to the lake of fire, which is a synonym for hell. And then the Bible talks about people who, when they leave this life, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And you and I could disagree on who's going where and so on and so forth, but the bottom line is this. There are two destinations when this life is over. There is heaven, there is hell. And we know that. So the question I want to come back to, or the statement that I want to come back to, is the statement that I made a few moments ago, and that is that good people go to heaven. You know, a few, a few years ago, maybe it's not even been a full year yet, but Americans were polled about how many Americans believed in, the, in heaven. 90% of Americans believed in some kind of life after life that could be, could be construed as heaven. When asked how many of them thought they were going there, guess, how many, guess what percentage of Americans thought they were going to heaven? 90%. You know, that's just, you know, it's interesting to me that Americans, there, there aren't Americans who say, I believe in heaven, I don't think I'm going. <laughs> I'm just asking you, how, how do you know that you're going to heaven? Well, the fact of the matter is, someday you and I are going to stand before God, and he is going to have us before him, and he's going to say, going into heaven, or unfortunately go to the other place. At this moment, you could, you could be saying, Mark, I really don't know how I wandered in here today. I really wish I had gone to some other church. I, I, because really this is a heavy topic. And, and really I just don't want to think about this right now. But the challenge that I want to get you to think about is that really this is a matter of God's love for us because the Bible, Romans, it, it deals with the question, who is good enough to go to heaven? And what Romans does, like no other book in the Bible, is that Romans prepares us for how to be at that moment. Many of us know what it's like to be prepped for a, an upcoming test, the SAT or the ACT. It's a nice thing to be prepped for that. Or to be prepped to defend a thesis if you're in grad school. To have someone come in and prep you for that moment and say, when you get in there, 
Here's how to defend your thesis. Here's what to say. Here's what not to say. Or maybe to be prepped for a job interview. And someone who is skillful and understands, you know, what you're about to do, you're going into a corporation. You don't know the corporation very well. You may not even know the work very well. And you're going to walk in there, and the person who preps you says she's going to want to know this, and she's going to ask you this. And when you get asked this, this is how you respond. This is how you answer that question. And, and most of us haven't been there, but some of you have been in court cases where you had an attorney who prepped you for how to answer when you got up there. And the attorney would say, this is how to tell the story. What I love about the Bible and I love about the love of God is that God wants you to be prepared to be at that moment when you stand before him, when God makes a decision about your eternal destiny. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. If all you and I hear is about that moment when we're going to stand before God and our destiny is going to be settled, we could be pushed back against that and we could thank God as a cold, harsh God to bring me to that moment when we could understand that God wants you to be prepared for that moment so that nobody would be declared guilty in his courtroom, then we can begin to understand that this book is not so much a religious book, but it is a love letter from God. I still don't know how Morales let me do this in all four of our weekend services, but she let me take this card with me on stage. Morales' dad passed away about a year and a half ago. One of the finest men I ever knew in my life. Mac was from that generation, fought in World War II, came up during the Depression, raised a family in post-war America. Mac was one of the guys from that generation that loved his family very much, but just didn't articulate it a great deal. Many of us know grandfathers and maybe even fathers from that generation. And Mac and his dear wife, they had four daughters. My wife, Marilyn, is the youngest of four daughters. And he expressed his love in many, many ways, but Mac would not be the kind of guy that would go to his daughters and say, I love you, to, to say that, or to, to send them a card. It just wasn't his way. And, and really, uh, when I first met Mary Alice when we were teenagers, the, the, the girls and, and my mother-in-law weren't really sure about where Mac was spiritually. He's just the most decent guy you ever met in your life, but they really weren't quite sure where he was spiritually, in large part because he was just so quiet about everything. I, I still remember the day many years ago, we lived on South Hillside, the church was located over there at the time, and I still remember Mac driving up with, with my mother-in-law, and, and he pulled up in his truck, and, and, and in his normal, not saying many words kind of way, Mac said, get in the truck, Mark. <laughs> and he drove to McDonald's, he'd been listening to a sermon series that I preached, and Mac said, I want to be sure I'm going to heaven. And when I preached this funeral a year and a half ago, that was a very special moment to me. But... As I said, Mac was not one to give cards. And Morales would always say that, you know, if she got a card from her parents, she would know that her mom picked out the card, signed the card, put her dad's name on it. If she got a present, it would be her mom picked out the present, put her dad's name on it. I should tell you that in 1998, my father-in-law had a crippling stroke and lost the usage of the right side of his body. And he spent a lot of his life institutionalized after that. And, and one day, at, not long after Marilyn's birthday, my mother-in-law called Marilyn and she said, did you, did you get the card that your dad sent to you? <laughs> Marilyn instantly thought, it's a card from my mom that my dad put his name. And, and she said, but she started to answer, but before she could get out, <coughs> excuse me, her mom started telling her the story. Her dad at that time was in a care facility, and her daddy called Marilyn's mom and said, I'd like to send Marilyn a card personally for her birthday. My mother-in-law said she wasn't prepared for the moment. My last birthday is in the summer. And, but she went to her closet. The only card she had was a Christmas card. This is a picture of a bluebird uh, in a tr- winter tree. And it's blank on the inside. 
And that was the only card she could find. So she took it to the care facility. And my father-in-law, with his left hand, scribbled. And you, 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 there's no way in the world you, you could probably read this unless, you, unless somebody told you what it said. He scribbled in the card upside down. <laughs> it just says, happy birthday. Love, Dad. And my mother-in-law explained it to Mary Alice. Mary Alice instantly knew where the card was. Mary Alice gets cards all the time, letters from, from people. And, and she had opened the card and thought it was from a child. She thought it was just a, a small child who tried to scribble on the card. So she put the card in a stack, in a stack of papers. And she, didn't, you know, she hadn't thought about it in a long time. But when my mother-in-law told her the story, Mary Alice thought instantly, I bet that card's in that stack. And she went through that stack and she found this card. And now i got to tell you, it's laminated. And Mary Alice says, and she tells the story in starting point all the time. It's something that Morales keeps before and looks at every day because this is the only card she ever got from her dad after a stroke. This is happy birthday. Love, Dad. And here's the thing. For many of us, the Bible is a religious book, and we put it in a stack. But what we need to come to grips with is this is God's love letter. This is your father's love letter to you. And, and thinking about where you're going to be five seconds after eternity, it's not a scary thought you should push God away. What you should do is you, you should invite God into your life and most of all, invite his book into your life because his book tells you that he doesn't want anybody to be declared guilty in his sight. Well, the question, if, if being good is how, how you get into heaven, then probably the question that you and I need to start asking today for the few moments that we're going to spend together after this is, how can you be good enough to get into heaven? What is good enough to get into heaven? Because see, here's the thing. Most of us, and including me, we approach it wrongly. We tend to approach it from the negative side because when we think about, how, am I good enough to go into heaven? We tend to think about the things that we've done wrong. And so we sort of ask ourselves, have we violated our quota of how much you can do wrong? Right? Isn't that how we look at it? Have I been so bad I can't get in? But that's not how God measures it because the Bible tells us that God measures it based on something called righteousness. Now, that's not a term that we use very much. In fact, when we hear the term righteousness, most of us will hear organ music and stained glass, seek stained glass. We shouldn't do that because righteousness just means rightness. You know what it means to be right. Right just means you got it. It's the correct answer. And so when God looks at us and asks the question, are we good enough to get into heaven? The question is, what about our rightness? How right are we? Well, if you were here in week one, you know that most of us are honest enough, whether you're secular or religious, you grew up, you know, if you grew up completely without any religion, if you're like me and you grew up in church. One way or the other, we tend to look at this book and with all of its rules and guidelines and everything, and we sort of know right out of the box that we're, we're not up to God's standard. So what we do is we make up our own. And what we say is, I figure this is what it takes to be good enough. And so you, if you're secular, then you sort of have your own rightness, and you've decided this is what it takes to be good enough. I, I don't judge anybody. I, I'm kind to everybody. I'm, I'm politically correct, and I try to do all the right things. If you're religious, then you tend to have you know, hoops that you jump through in order to be right. And we tend to measure ourselves against other people, and we feel like if we live up to our, our ideas... We're probably okay, but the Bible talks about God not being fooled by this. Because look at Romans chapter 10, verse 3. The Bible says this is what our human nature is. They disregarded the rightness from God and attempted to establish their own rightness. In other words, I, I know I can't live up to God's standard, but I have a religious rightness that I picked up growing up in a Baptist church. Others of you, you have a secular rightness that you picked up going to the movies and watching, you know, pop culture and, and going to college and talking to your friends, watching Oprah. I mean, it's like we, we've got... 
we, we have our own rightness. But notice what happens with that. The Bible says insisting on making their own deals, they have nothing to show for it. Because at the end of the day, you and I are not going to stand before each other. We're going to stand before God. And so our question before us is, how can we have enough rightness to get into heaven? How can we become good enough to get into heaven? That's what Romans is all about. And that's the reason why I've said to you, if I only had three talks to give, these are the three talks I would want to give you. Well, if you were here for week one, God talks to the secular person. And, and there are some non-theists right now that are getting a lot of attention because they're buying space on the sides of buses and billboards. And they're saying that you don't have to have God to be good. And I want to say something. I take my hat off. I don't get angry at them. Actually, I take my hat off to them for, for having the integrity to get to the bottom line of their point of view. Because there are a lot of people who claim to have God in their theological repertoire who believe the same thing. I mean, they, they claim to believe in God, but God is not really an active part of their lives. And basically the idea is, I can be a good enough person without God. But the Bible tells us that God does not judge us based on the acts that we do or don't do. He tends to look at us first and foremost, considering our attitude toward him. And so in chapter 1, God talks to the secular person, and, and we've read it. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress or hold down, tamp down the truth by their wickedness. They knew God. In other words, God said he was a parent, but they wouldn't worship him as God. God said, or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. The word, Greek word is sophos. We get a word sophisticated from it. Claiming to be sophos, they instead became, and the Greek word is moros, but I won't even say that, okay? What that means. But what's chilling is verse 24, because it said God abandoned them. You know, you could be here today and you're saying, Mark, I wouldn't consider myself a religious person. I don't think much about God. I should tell you, I don't consider myself religious either. But it could be that you're here you're saying, Mark, I just don't believe in this whole deal about right and wrong, and I think it's all right for me to sleep with anybody I want to sleep with. I think it's okay for me to, to do basically whatever it is that I want to do. I just, you know, I think I'm all right with that. Let me just say something to you. If you do something that you know is wrong and something inside of you says, hey, don't do that. Don't push back against that voice. Because the most chilling circumstance that you could possibly be in today is for you to be able to do wrong, for you to be able to be immoral, for you to hurt people, for you to be greedy and selfish and not feel anything. Because the Bible says that what happens at that moment is finally God, after trying everything he can to draw you to himself and to get you to think about him, what God finally does is say, okay, I won't bother you anymore. That is the most terrifying place to be. So in chapter 1, God looks at the secular culture and God says, okay, you, I'm not a useful hypothesis to you. You don't want to think about me. God just says, I'm going to let the lights get darker and darker and darker and the conduct gets worse and worse and worse. And finally God says, I give up. So now in chapter 2, chapter 2 is all about the religious person because the religious person is listening to God talk to the secular person and the religious person is saying, yeah, I'm good. I've got it all worked out. I've been to church. I've been to classes. I've gone through catechism. I've, you know, I've been baptized. And, and all those things may be excellent in their place, but there's the idea that many of us have, especially if we grew up in religion, that all we have to do is do what's required of us and that we're good. Honestly, folks, I grew up in a Baptist church, and I, I'm thankful for a lot of good things that I learned in it, but this is a fact. We had something called Sunday school back in the day, which, in, and, and I'm, I'm not, I don't know what your experience was if you were in Sunday school. That was a 60-minute segment of time designed to entirely bore kids out of their brains before they went to the worship service. 
I promise you. I had a teacher, well-meaning, well-intentioned woman up there with cat eye glasses I grew up in the 60s. I would stand behind a lectern for 45 minutes and say, okay, boys, put your hands in your lap, sit up straight, and no talking. Man, with my ADHD brain, I was so gone by that, by that time. But I remember this is a fact. We had an envelope that we were supposed to bring our offering in. And trust me on this, there were boxes that you could check. You got points for things. Were you there? You got 10 points. Did you bring your Bible? 10 more points. Did you bring an offering? 10 more points. Did you memorize your verse? 10 points. I guess it all added up to 100. But I think that a lot of us who grew up in religion, that was sort of the deal. You know, if you check all the boxes, you must be okay with God. And so over in chapter 2, when God is giving it to the secular person, the religious person is saying, na 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 I told you. And then God said, okay, Mr. Religious God, let me talk to you. God said, you may think you can condemn such people, chapter 1 people, but you're just as bad. You have no excuse. When you say they should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. Let me tell you what I've learned in 35 years of pastoring. Church people do everything that the people outside the church do. We just cover it up better. God, God is saying to church people, don't think you're pulling the wool over my eyes because you checked all your boxes. God is saying, I know you. I know you deep down inside. In fact, God is saying to the religious person, you're worse off. So that's chapter 1, chapter 2. We turn the corner to chapter 3, and we're not surprised because we're saying, okay, well, if the secular person is not good enough to get into heaven, and the religious person is not good enough to go into heaven, who is good enough to go to heaven? And God just answers a question for us. Basically, all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, start out in identical conditions. We all start out as sinners. Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There's nobody living right, not even one. Not Gandhi, not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa. Well, see, remember, we tend to look at people according to how we live next to each other. But God looks at a completely different standard. And God said there's nobody good. And just in case we miss it, in Romans 3.23, it says everyone has sinned. And we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Well, then where does it leave us? I mean, because we're all going to be in that room when, we, when we're standing before the judge. And he's going to look at us, and the question is going to be, are we going to be okay? Are we not going to be okay? And in Romans 3, verse 19, the Bible says, whatever the law says, and that's the compilation of all of God's rules, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be shown to have made mistakes. Did I read that right? That's the American way, isn't it? I'm not perfect. I mean, we say that like it's news. Well, I'm not, I mean, I've got a lot of faults, but I'm not perfect. You know, I'm not perfect, but I, I made mistakes. Listen, guys, that's not what the Bible says. Mistake is leaving the milk out. It is what it is. Whatever the law says. In other words, if you want to say, I'm good enough, I, I, I'm, I've been to church, I've done all the things, I think I'm okay, I think I must be good enough. The Bible says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, it's very important that nobody gets the evidence that says, I deserve to be here. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now you're going to do one of three things with that statement. Number one, you're going to get mad, and you're going to say, I don't like being called guilty. 
and I'm checking out and I'm leaving. That would be eternally catastrophic. The second thing you could say is, well, I'm, not, I'm just not going to pay any attention to it. Kansas is in the Elite Eight. We're in the middle of the NCAA right now. <laughs> I just, this is, whew, all this, you know, I'm having a hard time paying my bills. My wife and I can't get along. My kids are driving me nuts. And so all, this is sort of this existential stuff that you're talking about today. I'll think about it someday, but I don't want to think about it today. Or you could be like me. And let me just tell you what Mark is like. Listen, when God tells me I'm guilty before him, I don't have any problem with that. I know that's true. You want to tell me I'm not good enough to go to heaven? Tell me something I don't know. You want to tell me I'm a sinner? I want to tell you, I've got a, I've got a resume for that one. And if you're like me, you know, you, you won't get angry and you won't ignore it. You'll go to pieces. And you'll think, wow, I'm going to stand before God and I'm a sinner and I'm not good enough and I'm guilty. Here's where I don't like the way this series has worked. Because I've had three weekends. I, I talked to you from Romans 1, then we had a week off. I talked to you about Romans 2, we had a week off, and now we're having Romans 3. I wish I could have read all three chapters to you in order so that you could have felt the flow of it. Because if you could have felt the flow of it, here's what you would have got. Secular person, he's guilty before God. Religious person, she's guilty before God. Guess what? We're all guilty before God. And nobody's good. You know, and then all of a sudden you turn this delicious corner and you go to verse 21 and there is this marvelous verse. And I want you to look at it because you need to see it in the context of everything we said. Paul is saying, but now... Boy, if there was ever a great contraction in the Bible, it's the word, but, or a great word in the Bible. But now a righteousness, a rightness from God apart from law has been made known. Paul is saying, good news, there is a way for you to be right with God. And let's read on. This rightness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Let's stop for a moment and pay attention to this. The Bible says the rightness comes from Mark. No, because I'm not right, and I'm going to tell you something. I can never be right. I'm not right today. I won't be right tomorrow. Ten years from now, I'll still be all screwed up. So the rightness that God gives doesn't come from me. It comes from him, and it comes not, not through turning over a new leaf, because if you've been to religion, that's what religion will tell you. You've got to join our church, learn our rules, go through our hoops, give, give money to the church. Through your conduct, you can get a rightness that comes from God. No, the answer says the rightness comes from God, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. And isn't it cool that we got back to the word all? Because a few moments ago it says all are sinners. And now this is available to all who believe. Who believe. Every week. Four times a weekend. And soon to be five times. I stand on stage and I ask at the end of the service. If you would like to pray to receive Jesus. To pray and invite him into your life. And it happens within seconds. Guys, think with me for a moment. How, how can I offer that kind of deal? Honestly, how can I stand right here, as I've done hundreds of times, and I say to you, if you would like to have a relationship with God, even though you're a sinner, if you will put your confidence in Jesus Christ, he will forgive you of every sin and he will adopt you into his family. How can I make an offer? See, here's what we don't talk about enough in church. I want to show you the basis by which this works. One of the most important verses in your Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where the Bible says, God made him, the him there is Jesus, who had no sin. It simply means he had never been acquainted with sin. God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us. The next time you watch the Passion of the Christ, or you think about Jesus dying on the cross, ask yourself this question. Why would God the Father put his son on the cross and allow him to be brutalized the way he was? And the answer for that question is right here. God made him to be sin. If you've read the story of Jesus dying on the cross, you'll know that there is a key moment sometime in that six hours when Jesus was on the cross when God turned his back on his son. I mean, God turned his back on his beloved son. And Jesus cried out at that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in case you know about Jesus praying in Gethsemane when he asked God to let the cup pass from him, my personal view is Jesus was saying, Father, if there's any way possible, could I be spared from that moment when you turn your back on me and you leave me to suffer alone? Why did the Father turn his back on his only son and let him suffer at that moment? The reason why God could not look at his son was his son in God's mind had actually become sin. My sin and your sin and the sins of the world were so on Jesus that when God looked at his son, he saw sin. Read that with me one more time. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we who had no righteousness might become the rightness of God. I want you to think of it this way. Imagine for a moment that I'm wearing my sin. This coat is my sin. When Jesus was on the cross the way the Father looked at it, all my sin, past, present, and future, all my sin was future at that moment, was placed on Jesus. And God punished his son because he was wearing my sin and your sin. Now here's the thing that we don't hear enough in church. Because not only did Jesus carry our sin, if you read 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says that, but let me ask you a question, did Jesus live a good life? Are you kidding me? It was rock imperfect. I mean, look at what he did. Look at, look, look at his love for people. Look at him getting up before daybreak and praying for hours. Look at him touching people who were untouchable. Look at him loving people who were unlovable. Look at him forgiving people who were unforgivable. I mean, look at what he did. Did he live a great life? Oh, my goodness, did he live a great life. I read about his life, and I think, oh, that I could live like that one day. Do you understand that when Jesus died on the cross, not only did you slip off your sin and put it upon him so that he was punished for your sin, his righteousness was slipped off of him and it was slipped onto my shoulder so that when God looked at me and I stand before God, not only am I standing before him without my sin because Jesus took my sin, I am now standing before God with the record of Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? I mean, look at it. It's in the Bible. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we who had no righteousness might become the righteousness of God. There's a verse in Romans 4 that every time I read it, I just, it, it still feels shocking to me. I read it the first time when I was a teenager. And honestly, folks, every time I look at the two gargantuan statements that it makes, I'm still amazed. The Bible says this, God does two things. He justifies the ungodly and he credits righteousness apart from works. In other words, somebody like me that's a sinner, God justifies me. You know, God doesn't just equip me, he justifies me. I, my sin hasn't just been, it's not like God said, well, I'm going to pretend like he didn't did it. No, do it. No, my sin was placed on Jesus. It's been paid for. 
It no longer exists. I'm not just acquitted. You know, some of us can remember the OJ trial. He got acquitted. A lot of us think he did it. You know, still that eye of suspicion. But that will never be on you and me because we weren't just acquitted. Our sins were paid for in Christ. So God justifies the ungodly, and then he turns around and credits us with righteousness that we don't earn. This is the reason why I bring this message to you today because, see, it's so backward. It's like the golf swing. It's so backward to everything that we would normally think. And yet this is the message of the Bible. Well, somebody will say, well, Mark, okay, I'm not good enough, but God made a way for me to be, to stand in his courtroom and to be innocent and to be righteous. How do I get that? Because I live in Kansas and God lives in heaven. I'm so far away. By the time Paul gets to Romans chapter 10, he's laid out the case pretty well and he's, he's going to point us to how we can access this relationship. And the Holy Spirit really clearly understands that we might wonder, how can a person like me so far from God have this kind of relationship? And here's what the Bible says. The righteousness or the rightness that is by faith, we've read about that this morning, says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the deep that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? In other words, this right standing with God that's available to you that we read about a moment ago. What is its message to you? The word is near you. God had me bring this series. You're here today. God is saying, look, it's not like you've got to find some way to take a pilgrimage to heaven and find God. The word is close to you. In fact, it's been so clear and so clearly stated. The word, the Bible says, is in your mouth and it's in your heart. That's your inner person. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you not might, not could be, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. That means secular and religious. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God knew I couldn't be good enough, and so he was good enough for me. God knew I could never deal with sin, so he dealt with it for me. He put all my sin on his son and clicked and dragged his righteousness to my account so that all I had to say is like a groom at a wedding says, I do. That's all you have to do to receive God's gift so that when you stand in his courtroom, God will say, daughter, son, Come on home. Come on home. We're not even going to go into the record. All I see is the record of Jesus. We're not going to talk about any sin. That's all been paid for. Just come on in. Come on in. That's why I hate religion. That's why I love Jesus. Well, now you know why I can stand before you and offer you that deal. And I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to offer you an opportunity to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life. And these aren't magic words. But I'm going to invite you to say them with me in prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Jesus, 
I agree. I'm a sinner. But your word says everybody is. And I'm not good. And on my own, I can't be. But I believe you love me unconditionally. You love me so much that you punished your son for my sin and offer me his perfect righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, I receive you right now. I receive the gift. In your name, Jesus, I pray, amen.